Welcome to the Banff Money Excel podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Page from Theogen, and I'm joined today at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine uh, with Ozan Gandogdu from Lishtum, is that how you call it? Yeah. London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Whatever. <laughs> and uh, Arnold Van Bleet from the University of Surrey. So, do you guys want to introduce yourself? Okay, um, I'm Ozan Gandogdu. I'm an assistant professor at NSHTM working on bacterial pathogenesis and bioinformatics. Awesome. And I'm Arnold van Vliet. I'm at the uh, School of Veterinary Medicine at uh, the University of Surrey. I've been doing lots of work on different foodborne pathogens, bioinformatics, and pretty much anything but now goes nowadays. So my first question is, right, you guys know more about Campy and Campy genomics than I do. So can you tell me why do people care about Campy in the first place? Yeah, so most importantly, uh, Campylobacter jejuni especially is the most common cause of gastroenteritis in humans in the developed world, so in the high income countries, and they estimate that uh, probably 60 to 70 percent of gastroenteritis, human case of gastroenteritis, is Campylobacter. In the UK, they think it's about 200 to 250,000 cases uh, per year. And that's mostly from chicken? And... It's mostly from chicken and from uh, bovine sources. And the problem is that we can't get it out. So at the supermarket, the chicken that's sold at the supermarket, uh, up to 70% will still have Campylobacter on it. If it's cooked well, that should not be a problem, but cross-contamination in the kitchen and not cooking it well may lead to Campylobacter infection. And that could give you not just diarrhea, but there are also potential long-term consequences, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is paralysis. Yeah. Just to piggyback on what Arno said, I, it was, I, it's always worth remembering that there's a huge food safety element, but also, inc you know, incredibly, it's one of four global causes of diarrheal disease. Yeah. Which, when you think of that in low-resource countries and the impact it has, unfortunately, fatalities on children under the age of five, there's a huge uh, health burden there for us. Does it impact the chickens at all? Not really, although there is a lot of debate whether it's a commensal or a pathogen or an opportunistic pathogen mostly in chickens. So there are people on one and the other side, as we usually polarize. But mostly if you would see a chicken which has a lot of Campylobacter, which could easily be 10 to the 11 CFU coliniformic units per gram of sequel matter, and one which is completely Campylobacter free, you'll normally won't see any difference on the outside. So you won't be able to say which chicken is full of Campylobacter and which one isn't. But there is an immune response against Campylobacter, which suggests that there is something happening. So if you look in databases, there's a huge amount of Campylobacter uh, sequences out there. Do we need to sequence any more or is it just a case of looking into that data in a bit more detail? Well, the, what we have is we have a great resource that in Oxfordshire, every Campylobacter that gets isolated gets sent to the University of Oxford and gets sequenced. And then to Quadrum. And then to Quadrum and so on. That means that we have an enormous amount of human uh, isolates, which is the end, an end host of Campylobacters, not the natural host. Yeah. And most of them will be from chicken or from bovine sources. The problem is we don't know what else is out there because there's a lot of potential other animals and environmental isolates that are not sequenced because nobody's looking for them. So it's just selection bias is a huge... There's difference. a strong selection bias, mostly it's agricultural, even Campylobacter coli, which is the second most important one in food safety. 
There are more big islets and, and so on, but still it's uh, the environmental, especially the role of the environment is underestimated because they're not looking for it. Yeah, and just to add to what Arno said there, I mean, this is the classic Campylobacter conundrum. It's a microaerophilic pathogen, which means ideally like five to ten percent oxygen. Mm. The atmosphere has 19.1, 19.2% oxygen. How can it be surviving in the environment? We find it everywhere. So you must have yeah. good genetic regulatory mechanisms to counter this uh, this stressed non-ambient conditions. So how does that survive like in the outside packaging and stuff like that? That's uh, the good thing. Well, if we do it on the lab, you leave it on an agar plate and you leave it outside, it will die very rapidly. On meat, suddenly it seems to transform and find some way of surviving. And they have all kinds of things they've introduced in the, the food industry, like um, rapid uh, freezing, without you know, rapid nitrogen cooling, without having the effects of freezing, but the benefits from freezing for Campylobacter. And they have done things like steam uh, with sound together, sono steam. They all target, they all get Campylobacter reduced, but they, are, they all target the same Campylobacters. So we can't get rid of it in the, uh, the, the food environment. And it seems to be able to be much happier on meat than it is on the plate. That's mad. It's, yeah. it's and, what it is. And, and the other thing to link to that is we don't have a... I mean, historically, we wouldn't say it's a model organism, and there's yeah. two main reasons for that. One, it's rather pedantic to grow. And also, it, there, isn't, there isn't convenient animal models, so we're going to definitely say it's not a model organism. But the other thing is, we, we don't really, there isn't a vaccine for it. And there's an, there's an Why not? Well, why not? Because one of the main reasons is that if you're going to give a chicken vaccine, yeah. you probably wouldn't give a human vaccine. You, if you give a chicken vaccine, you, that must be some, a seriously cost-effective vaccine for an animal that usually you're going to kill at day 35. And so, yeah. but, but, you know, even reducing, as Arno said, it can go up to 10 to the 9, 10 to the 10, 10 to 11 CFUs. You know, some, there's been some modeling prediction that said even if you go down to like four logs different, lower, you can potentially reduce or halve the transmission rates to humans. So it's not that we shouldn't try it, it's just it's today been very difficult. Also, vaccines, uh, the, the vaccines that have worked against salmonella, for instance, the type of vaccines don't work against Campylobacter, uh, partially that may be due to the genetic variability, so yeah. whatever we use as the, the vaccine antigen will, will not be conserved in all strains. So what you may be doing is just selecting for ones for other ones. So the major types may be targeted, and there's a good example in Streptococcus pneumoniae, where they have the vaccine against the most the seven most common serovars, yeah. and yes, they those are reduced if you use the well, vaccine. Certainly. But you get something else taking over the the space that has been vacated, yeah. and that could be either other uh, streptococci or things like Moraxella, Haemophilus, and so on. And then sometimes it's better the devil you know. True. Although when they brought in those vaccines, they were selected for a particular regions of the world, and then other regions of the world had different things circulating, and that didn't necessarily work in the same way. It 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 has it has helped, and so for Salmonella, it has helped as well. Again, especially the vaccine against Salmonella enteritidis. Yeah. But then you target a very specific serotype of Salmonella in eggs and everything, and in layers. So you reduce it there. So we still don't have that point where we could we should really target Campylobacter because we still don't fully understand why it's so good at what it's doing. So you've done a lot of uh, Campy genomics and Campy pan genomics and things like that so you probably know a little bit more about what the pan genome is like so what can you tell from it and is it useful in any way? Like I have a personal interest in pan genomes. The, the pan genome is really useful especially in 
if you compare it to the genetic variability, but somehow there don't, there don't seem to be really factors that really specify, for instance, whether it's more bovine or more chicken. We do know that certain uh, sequence types, MLST sequence types, either go into chickens or go into bovines. Yeah. But if you then look at you know, the band genomes, there isn't like a single factor or a few factors that dominate. So it could be things like that it may be serovars and we don't understand the genetics of serotyping well enough. It could be the capsule. And because there's so much variation, you don't get the same genes coming out. So Do you have plasmids moving around? Yes, but again, plasmids don't seem to be the answer to it. There's a lot, there's several plasmids. They may have had some antibiotic resistance, but they don't answer the question on why some of them are better than others. And what about like say type six secretion systems? Yeah, I mean so uh, as I mentioned, because of uh, Campylobacter not being classified as a model organism and the impact on, on public health, it was one of the first bacterial genomes to be sequenced in 1999-2000. And actually then we found that uh, unlike classic enteric pathogens, it doesn't have a type 3 secretion system. It has a capsule, which was debated hotly just before that genome sequence came out. Yeah. And so more recently, some isolates have been found to have, for example, a type 6 secretion system, which essentially is a gun that fires bullets, toxins, effectors, which can damage other bacteria, uh, so it's involved in niche adaptation, yeah, yeah. but also can potentially damage host cells, or even be involved in survival. Now, the characterization of the type 6 is, is behind other classic enteric pathogens and classic uh, you know, model organisms that have the type 6, but we're starting to learn more and more about the, the function of the type 6, the functions, plural, in terms of Campylobacter. So what actually causes the, the disease in humans from Campy? Well, that's a bit difficult to say. We know that one of the differences between people in uh, high-income countries versus lower middle-income countries, the people in, in high-income countries don't get exposed to Campylobacter very often. Yeah. Even though we have a lot of number of cases, there may actually be clustering of certain people getting multiple infections. And so our immune system hasn't seen it before or has not seen that strain before. So what you get then is our immune system overreacts and that may be cause of the, the disease. In the lower middle income countries you see because people get multiple infections, you see some level of tolerance or milder disease. And there has been talk about that people who work in, uh, in chicken houses and everything which get exposed to Campylobacter a lot more mm. may actually have similar ideas there. They get sort of protected by multiple exposures, mm -hmm. but when a new type comes in and they're not, their immune system is, doesn't recognize it, they may get an episode of Campylobacter again. Yeah. But that's all very much anecdotal evidence. That's the, the problem. But we do see a lot more watery diarrhea in lower middle income countries and more the, the, the bloody diarrhea in high income countries. I was just going to add that the, the general belief of that is that due to the, it's the, the level of exposure and the sort of levels of the sorry Anna, yeah, cool. yeah so just just the, the the amount of times that people have been exposed to the bacteria yeah causes the watery diarrhea but again with children under the age of five if they there's a diarrheal issue there yeah. it can cause fatality. yeah that's that's of course these the, the the vulnerable categories which would be you know the young children. Uh, pregnant women, immunocompromised people and the elderly are always more at risk. One thing more to say about the pan genome, because of your, also because of your interest, one of the things we do see is that there seems to be uh, your certain virulence factors seem to be linked to certain sequence types. Right. So, again, not as an explanation on why certain sequence types are better than others, but you just see that there, the genetic variation 
is actually very much linked to the MLST sequence types. That's really cool. And so, you know, a certain sequence type will have a certain virulence factor, whereas another sequence type will not have it. So you can infer maybe severity from sequence type? Well, that's the problem more, is, is we see certain sequence types are very much chicken specific, other ones yeah. are very much bovine specific. Uh, so that could actually be more an exp uh, potential explanation why they're better at certain animal hosts. So how does the campy get into uh, like a chicken house when the chickens are only going to survive for a few weeks? Yeah, I mean, I've, mm -hmm. been to, I've been to an industrial setup, but we have linked to an industrial setup, and yeah. it is like going into a NASA space station, the level of security, but it can still get in there. It can get in there from the environment. It's potentially linked to humidity, water droplets, and mm. then you start thinking that, um, you know, what's happening in, with the intensification of food production systems around the world, with globalization, urbanization, how is that impacting uh, the spread of Campylobacter and, and actually the, 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 the level of mutation and, and uh, evolution of the pathogen as well. We used to have an interesting thing called thinning where uh, people would go in at day 29 or 30 to take 25% of the birds out and already send them to processing okay. so that the other birds had more space to, uh, to grow into and grow bigger. Yeah. Uh, and that was of course a, a big breach of biosecurity and these people would go from farm to farm as well. So yeah. in a way complete madness if you think about it. Yeah. Uh, after in 2013 and 14, the Food Standard Agency actually started reporting on supermarkets how many, uh, what percentage of birds at retail was positive for Campylobacter. Mm. And for instance, what Marks and Spencer then started was the first to say, well, well, we won't allow thinning anymore. We'll only buy birds where no thinning has happened. But of yeah. course, it has economic consequences because you need more space for the same number of birds. So it, it's not, many, that's one of the problems. Is many of these interventions at the low profit margins that you have per bird, many of these interventions that may work are actually not economically viable. So what does the epidemiology of uh, Campylobacter jejuni look like in the UK? Like is it single clones that are kind of dominant everywhere or is it very, very dispersed over multiple it's, different it is, it is dispersed over certain sequence types that pop up more. What actually seems to happen is that sequence type uh, 21, which is like 20-25% of the isolates that they get in humans, is not necessarily that good at colonizing chickens but it seems to be really good at, colon uh, at surviving the food chain. Right. So the ones that colonize the chickens may not be as good as surviving the food chain, whereas 21, as long as it's there, it will become dominant during the processing and uh, the storage uh, time. And you talk it doesn't go backwards and it's not a cycle, it's a one-way street. It's a one-way street, so those are the, f the ones that we find most often in, in humans. And it just seems to be because they're better at food chain survival and ultimately, that is the most important factor. You have to be in the chicken first or in the, yeah. the, the bovine to get into the race. But then it's, you know, who has the best survival chances afterwards. And are humans a dead-end host or can camping persist in the in human for long periods? So uh, it's important to note that I wouldn't necessarily classify Campylobacter as an intracellular pathogen. Maybe it has an intracellular phase, but it's certainly not intracellular. And so I think that the human is an accidental uh, uh, end game for it, and so yeah. it's not. Its intention is not in, to get into humans and survive there. There may, of course, be that through the diarrhea that goes via the, uh, the the sewer system that may go back into circulation, but that's more, much more indirect. There seems to be little human to human transmission. Okay. Again, that could be due to you know bad hand washing and everything 
but it's not a major factor. The major factor seems to be uh, food and animal contact, if you think more rurally. So if you think of the UK and you look at the what ends up in people and get sequenced in people and what is actually, say, in the environment in chickens, what's the link there? It's bovines and chicken and poultry which are the major hosts. That's where it seems to come from. And there has been a story which I still need to better study where they thought that bovines were a source that would then go get into chickens and then get into humans. Yeah. But we have to, I think we have to separate the urban and the rural uh, routes. The, with the rural being more the direct contact routes, you think raw milk, contact with animals. Yeah. Whereas the uh, urban one is much more, you know, buying contaminated meat, uh, cross-contamination in the chicken and uh, in the kitchen and uh, eating un uh, underprepared yeah. food. And with the urban link, that's why, the, for example, the UK government, a good few years ago now, made this, uh, you know, with the FSA to, to not wash chickens that you buy from supermarkets, which caused yeah. all kinds of crazy uh, reaction from people because it wasn't necessarily well explained that, that, the, that the splashing of that water into your vegetables and your yeah, kitchen yeah, yeah, utensils yeah. could help spread. But also it, it actually contradicted things that many, many decades ago the government said to people that you had to wash chickens. Yeah. So people, yeah. all the people that had been told to wash chickens now said, hold on. It's the opposite. You're now telling me yeah. the opposite. So yeah. what is correct? So with Brexit, right, there is a big controversy over uh, chlorine washed chickens. <laughs> Does that actually help keep camping under control? Like, what's it like in the US compared to the UK? Yes, it helps. What what basically chlorine does is that it it masks bad welfare and control issues. Does it work? Only, but but again, the same thing with the uh, the freezing and the uh, the steam up to a certain level. But it doesn't get rid of it. But what the reason why chlorine is actually not chlorinated chicken is not allowed in the EU and in Britain is not because of the chlorine, because the same chlorine residues may be on salads and everything. Yeah. It's basically because it's hiding welfare issues. What we say in the EU and in the UK is that they need to get to a certain level of compilobacter without chlorine. So you do your best to do that. In the US, because they use chlorine, they have much worse welfare and other issues that are hidden by the chlorine. Mm. And we don't allow that. So the chlorine is a more complicated issue. And yes, it's involved in trade wars and everything. So it, it's much more than that. But in principle, yes, you, you do not want the conditions that they have yeah. over there here. Awesome. Any final words, Alison? Final words. I mean, we've been studying, uh, I know, studying <laughs> back longer than me, but um, certainly I, my feeling is that, yes, we need uh, to understand the pathogen in the laboratory, the pathogenesis of it and, and virulence determines virulence factors and so forth. But hand in hand with enteric pathogens, because they're intrinsically linked with animal hosts and animal food systems, there's a role for industry, there's a role for government policy and potentially vaccines. So I, I think to, to, to counter something like Campylobacter is really a holistic approach. I mean, I don't, I don't know what your... Yeah, I hate the word holistic, but, <laughs> but basically, yes, it's, it's regulators, it's uh, the consumer, it's the producers, it's the retailers, it's uh, basically the whole industry and everybody has to work together and all can contribute to making it safer. The problem is, of course, you can, you can say to consumers, just cook it better and handle it better. Mm, yeah. But they would A, say it shouldn't be there in the first place and they're justified and B, it only treats the symptom. It doesn't treat, treat the cause of the problem. Mm. And what we would really like is to reduce compilobacter in chicken because that would take away much of the pressure on the whole system. Yeah. But 
we're fighting evolution. It has been there for millions of years probably, and uh, we try to solve it in a few years. Absolutely, and it'll keep us busy for many years to come, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for joining us on the Bioinformatics Lab podcast uh, today, and uh, yeah, I look forward to talking to you guys in the future. Thank you. Thank you.